Welcome to episode two of the Historians of Netherlandish Art podcast. I'm your host, Marcelie, and I'm here with Angela. Today, we will talk about art theory and the translation of Dutch source material with Celeste Brusati, Professor Emerita from the University of Michigan, and Walter Mellian, Professor at Emory University and the current president of the H&A. Celeste, you have recently published and edited Samuel van Hoogstraten's Inleiding tot de Hogescholen der Schilderkunst. And Walter, you are currently completing your English translation of Karel van Manders Grond der Edelvrije Schilderkunst. Walter, can you tell us more about this project? The Grond yeah. is, is only one part of the Schilderboek. It's just the opening section. Having said that, it's 14 chapters. So yeah. <laughs> it's poem. I'm not <laughs> translating it. It's it's written in Italian octaves. So, so eight lines per stanza, iambic pentameter, and the rhyme scheme is A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. I am not translating. I, I, <laughs> I could not possibly <laughs> translate that as prosody. And von Munder is a brilliant poet. I mean, period. And the rhyme schemes, both end of the line and internal to the line are incredibly witty and ingenious. I could not possibly do that. So it's a prose yeah. translation. For the most part, I tried to translate what he says in any line in a line of my translation, but that was not always possible. And sometimes what he says in line three of a stanza, I had to put in line four because it wouldn't, because in a prose translation, the reversal of position makes no sense whatsoever. So there are certain constraints when you convert from poetry to prose. But having gone through the translation again, as I've worked through the annotations, I'm actually quite happy with it. So you say that Van Wonder was a brilliant uh, poet, but really Celeste did Van Hoogstraten agree? Actually, I, I think Van Hoogstraten does agree. He thinks that Van Wonder is a great poet and that poetry inspires but it doesn't instruct the way prose does. And that's why he's going to translate that Flemish, the Flams of Arsene into the Hollandse Taal, right? He's going to change pedagogical uh, language. However, he constantly makes reference to von Mulder in poetic interludes, right? There are lots of verse interludes where he, he cites, mostly he paraphrases, he doesn't actually give you exactly von Mander. He gives you von Mander in Hoogstraten poetry, right? So he's, he's definitely, but I think he recognizes the poetic achievement of that text and also thinks that the way you teach art is different now. And he's been, you know, obviously influenced a lot by thinking in, in academic terms about, about how you proceed in, in an orderly way to teach art, but he's really very keen on these poetic uh, interludes, which I used to think were just him sort of showing off that he could do poetry. But now, and thanks to some conversations that Walter and I have had, I realized that, that the ekphrastic bits are doing a certain kind of work that the writer, in this case, Hoekstraten, believes can best be done by poetry and not in prose. So there's it's complicated, but it's interesting that he does all that. The difference between the book I wrote in Van Munder now decades ago, and I think of it almost as a work of juvenilia. I mean, <laughs> it, was <very laughs> different, it was a very different relation to Van Munder I had in those days. And 
And what I wrote about the groundwork in that book construed it as an art theoretical text. And what I'm doing now is trying to understand the groundwork as a poetic text that comments on the visual arts and uses ekphrasis as a way of making vividly present to the reader the experience of viewing the kinds of pictorial images von Mander is talking about. And to write about that theoretical text as a poem is very different from writing about it as I did 30 years ago as a kind of art treatise. And as a result of accepting that it's a poem, my understanding of von Mander's use of ekphrasis has changed very much. And I see what a brilliant ekphrastic writer he is. And I have begun, I think, finally to understand the kind of interpretative work the ekphrases are doing in, in, in the book. And, and one of the things that's very, very interesting to me is the way in which the ekphrases in book three of the Schilderbuch, which is the Italian Salefa, are different from the ekphrases in books two and four, which are the ancient lives and the northern lives. And then the fullest ekphrases appear in the groundwork. And they are really very fascinating indeed. So for example, at the end of um, chapter 10, which is the chapter on animals, and one of the things von Manda says in the groundwork is that there are four kinds of thing that have to be painted in a chistig way. They come from chist and they have to be executed with a hand that is chistig. And chist is a very complicated term, but these are skies and landscape generally, drapery, hair, and foliage. And he ends the animal chapter with a series of 16 epigrams on Myron's cow. <laughs> And, and what these 16 epigrams are doing, and they're incredibly, incredibly witty, because they play at the threshold between art and artifice. So always he is trying to show you through the ekphrases that this cow was so brilliantly fashioned that you experience it as a cow. But he's also trying to show you that there is no way that you cannot, that you can experience it as a cow and ignore that it is also artifice. It is also art. So it is totally convincing as a cow. And it is totally impressive as the artifice of a cow. And it can be both those things at one at the same time. And this is why in a CAA paper that is a response to Celeste's book, I talked about von Mander's fascination with the threshold between simulation and dissimulation, which is central to von Hoogstraten's project as Celeste has explicated it, but what I discovered by looking really closely at what von Mander is trying to do with his ekphrases is that his ekphrases play precisely at that threshold, that what the ekphrases do is articulate that relationship between nature and artifice. And those ekphrases on Myron's cow are actually the way in which von Mander explains what it is to depict something I didn't haste. And I was just going to sort of add to this conversation, especially because chaste is one of those very capacious terms that people imagine today, you know, we use all these things as if they mean this sort of very, I think we use them rather narrowly today. 
but their purchase, their semantic field was far greater. And that business about Geist is very interesting. Hoogstraten is consistent. He picks, he picks that up. And especially with regard to hair and foliage and all sorts of things that even though you as an artist are meant to be thoroughly attentive to all the specifics of everything in nature, there are things that cannot be pictured through direct observation. They get that. They understand way before Gombrich that there were sort of schemata that you use. But the way they talk about it is to say, look, this has to come from memory, from having seen many things and observed how they work. But basically, you have to invent it. You have to make it up and do it as if, but it is an artifice. It's not as if you directly transcribe what you see. And Geist is very important in that equation because that's the medium, that's the the place, if you want. It is a kind of mental thing, but it's also an animating thing. It's that that which, you know, often people translate it as spirit, as mind, as ingenuity, you know, all these things. And so that is something that I think I learned in a different way from, from Walter. And this was in a way, very pragmatically, a function of working collaboratively with Jap Jacobs, who is really very, very conversant in 17th century Dutch. But his field of interest as a historian was not art historical text per se. And so he had all kinds of different frames of reference for thinking about words that we were reading in Hoogstraten. And I would say to him sometimes, oh, well, yeah, you know, he means this there. And he goes, well, maybe he does, but that's not what he said. That's not what he wrote. He wrote this. And then we would take these things apart in a very granular way, but we would be sitting there with the feinte and God knows what else, and just, you know, looking at all these possibilities in order not, because I was very keen on not assuming a priori what von Hoogstraten was saying which is very hard to do after you've been decades kind of doing it. But I, I really tried to step back from that. And also, you know, reading a text and using it instrumentally for whatever reasons you're interpreting something and you want, you know, period words and, and talk about that topic, you go to the text, you pull out what you want, you make it do the work you want it to do. And it's a very different way of reading than actually word for word trying to be as precise as you can about what that writer was was writing and to comment hoogstrat in that way made me see all kinds of things that i didn't see before and of course you know i share with walter this experience of having dealt with earlier dutch since you know the 1970s you do learn some things and you learn them differently from native speakers because for native speakers, there, there is a tendency to forget, oh, this word might've meant something different than you think of it in today's usage first. And then maybe you think, oh, that might not be quite it. 
but for for a non-native speaker, 17th century or 21st century Dutch, they are other and differently other, but they're they're not your daily speech. So so that is actually in some ways very helpful if you in fact have gotten to know a language over decades and have you know been looking at all. I mean, we all study different kinds of texts besides our historical ones doing research anyway. So you. And you then, and you also get a feel for the writer. If that's different, right? You, if you start thinking about that writer as a writer, you kind of you kind of see what he what he does and and certain habits of talk. And also to get back to the poetry question, which is very interesting. I had never thought about the fact that sometimes words are chosen because of meter and rhyme. They're not chosen for theoretical purposes, especially when the passages are, are poetic. And so that was another thing that, um, again, you know, I had, I had just sort of taken it for granted before I had to sit down and, you know, sort of argue through and justify translation and edit. And I, I would say we went back and forth ourselves in the process of getting through the text. You have nine books that could be treated as unit. So we kind of dealt with it piecemeal. And then when we, you know, went back to look at the whole thing, it was like, oh my God, you know, he does this, he does that. Um, we can't consistently translate this word to mean that because that it changes by context. All these things that were discovered in, in a sense in the process of doing the translating and editing of the book. So that was that was really interesting, and it was very protracted for all sorts of reasons in, in our case. So it makes it a slightly different project from, from Walter's, and yet he and I both share this strange and interesting experience of going back to our dissertation you know, topics, in a, in a sense, and, and revisiting them in a totally different uh, framework. I was surprised that there was no English translation inspired by what Celeste was doing to write what is going to be the first published full translation in English of the groundwork. And it's going to be complementary to the other translations, but also somewhat different from them, because I construe uh, Van Mander's project a bit differently in that um, I take and, he, and did so even 30 years ago, Fernandez's book to be an intertext. It is a Schilderbuch. The six parts of the Schilderbuch are woven together. The book is compilatory, but at the same time, profoundly integrated. So the groundwork is the platform for what follows. Without the groundwork, there could not be the, the sequence of ancient lives, Italian lives, and Northern lives. But the groundwork is constantly using fables, and which is the subject matter of book five of the groundwork, which is a reading of Ovid's 15 books of the Metamorphoses. It's constantly weaving fables into van Mander's arguments and especially his ekphrastic usage. And then the final book of the Schilderbuch is an iconography, an iconography of the gods, an iconography of animals and things, and an iconography of abstractions, namely personifications. And he uses that too, but the platform for everything is the groundwork and the fabric of the skill book is a very intertextual fabric. And so I, I've read that book, the skill book cover to cover many, many times. Maybe I've even read it from back to front, I'm not sure. 
but 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 it was it was a curious exercise um, trying to translate the Quran, and and I did it in two stages. What if I were doing this as if books two, three, four, five, and six of the skill book had not been written? How would the translation look? And then how would the translation look in light of books two, three, four, five, and six? So the translation I ended up writing reconciles those two exercises, mm-hmm. uh, which is a bit bit of a tightrope to walk because he will say certain things about, say, haste or or leifen or invencio or dinancy in the chrant that are then developed in a slightly different direction in the ancient lives, the Italian lives, and the northern lives. So you you, you don't want to say something in the groundwork that is proleptic of what is coming in those lives, and yet you do not want to say something that would be contradictory of what he later does in his life. So it's it's a kind of it's a balancing, it's a balancing act. So it's but translation is always a complicated, it's a very complicated endeavor. But always I've tried to indicate in the annotations how rich and subtle Van Manda's literary usage is. While trying to be precise about what the words mean in context, I try to steer away from a lexical reading of his words. I think of his words as critical categories. I don't think of them as lexica, if I could put it in those, those terms. So I think that Celeste's approach to von Hoogstraten's language, which in her case is both prose and prosody, and my approach to von Munder's poem, these two approaches are quite complementary yeah. to each other. And in fact, I'm going to begin the introduction, I've already begun the introduction, by citing Celeste's von Hoogstraten book, because I want to show people that von Munder was read by von Hoogstraten, and yeah. that the text really was of fundamental importance to the way people thought about the visual arts as eloquent in the 17th century. Well, one of the things I, I discovered actually in thinking about van Munder's ekphrastic usage is he does not like the paragone. And as far the paragone being the competition between the arts. So what is it that, what makes sculpture different from painting? What is it that painting can do that sculpture can't do? And conversely, the Italian theoretical tradition of the academies, such as the Florentine Academia Fiorentina and then the Academia del Disegno, are understood in a paragonal frame of reference. That is what, what, what in Latin is called the disputatio artium, the dispute or the contest amongst the arts. This is the way in which one expounds the visual arts in the relation to, say, the literary arts, or one visual art in relation to another visual art. Van Munda doesn't like the disputatio artium. He doesn't like it one little bit. There's only one place in the Schilder book where he actually engages in a kind of paragonia, and that's where he talks about Hillis van Koningslow, and he's just trying to show that Koningsklug can do in his painted landscape something that no sculpture could do. It's the one paragon moment, but everywhere else from under shies away from the paragon. He just does not like this academic mode of, of discourse that is based on a kind of rhetoric of contestation. He does not like that. He prefers to reconcile the arts, and he thinks of the arts as both the literary arts and the visual arts as all sister arts. And this is the way he tries to articulate their relationship to each other. And so his sense of ekphrasis is that it is painting. 
And mm-hmm. by that, I mean that he does, he believes, even though he is very specific about medial differences in the Schilderbuch, even though he's very sensitive to what it is you can do with paint, what it is you can do with, with ink, he believes that there is no image a poem cannot paint. And conversely, there is no poetic device a picture cannot fashion. Mm-hmm. He believes that. There is no poetic effect beyond the scope of painting, and there is no pictorial es- effect beyond the scope of poetry. Now, the way in which a poem paints a picture is different from the way in which a painting pictures, but both images, qua images, will be powerful, effective, and persuasive. And therefore, one has to think of them as complementary to each other. This is the sense in which poetry and painting are truly sister arts. And this is why it's so important to read von Mander as a poet, because an art theoretician cannot produce verbally an image which can claim to be as powerful in its effect upon our mind, eyes, and heart as a painting, whereas a poet can make that claim. And, and, and that's why it was very important to take seriously the status of Fernanda's groundwork as a poem, as a poem that is trying to produce pictorial effects. And by producing these pictorial effects, explain what it is to paint a picture. And so he does not think of poetic ekphrasis and painting as disputatious in their relation to each other in the sense that they participate in the disputatio artium. He thinks of them as sororal, as sisters to each other. And that's something I've tried to put across in, in both the translation of the groundwork and the annotations that are the apparatus in which the poem I think it's interesting because I never, I, I never really thought about the Paragone um, in, and they don't figure largely in Hoogstraat. And even though contests are everywhere, I mean, he's all about, you know, contests, but these contests among, among painters and artists, not among the arts per se. And that sense of the complementary uh, relationship of painting and poetry, and that and that the term schilderachtig is invoked over and over and over again with regard to poems. Look at how schilderachtig uh, Virgil is in this description, and and so it's it is very much I think continuous with what you're uh, suggesting about Fomander with one kind of curious exception. And this is a funny passage. I I think he's sort of tongue in cheek where he's talking about painting flesh, Mm. which is of course the piece de resistance. That's the hardest thing in life, right? To get flesh color that's vital and supple and all that. And he then takes a poetic Ekphrasis, and I'm trying to remember if it's Ovid, Virgil, I can't remember who, um, where the flesh is compared to roses 
and uh, putting red rose petals under white in a bath. He says, look, the poet is out of his league here and just go ahead and try this. So he's being very funny, I think. It's quite literal. You know, go and get your basket, put your roses and your petals on top. And I'll tell you, you aren't going to come up with any flesh. You know, it's just not going to do it. So that's sort of a funny, and there are lots of these moments where he just goes completely, I don't know, he's wacky. He's funny. People do not understand that Hoogstraten is funny. And I said this and Ed, Ed Wook said to me, oh, so you mean Von Mulder and Hoogstraten are just in it for the laughs? No, 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 not that at all. But there are, there are humorous moments. There are changes of tone of voice in Hoogstraten, especially, and largely because so much of what he's doing is reported speech by others. You know, he's, he's combining and concatenating all these things that he's pulled together from reading and, and thinking and doing stuff over a lifetime. And he's putting it all together in clever ways, but it's not, it's not written in one or with one voice. And that makes it a kind of tricky text to use because if you just jump in and you pull out a little bit, you can't really know who's talking there exactly, right? You, you really need to contextualize it. And, and often, you know, people cut to the chase and forget that, wait a minute, this is embedded in a larger conversation and it's not exactly what it means, you know. I mean, it's sort of, you know, like what, what happens today with... Um, social media and all kinds of things like that, where, you know, you just plop something, pull it out of context, throw it together with something else. And Hoogstraten's book really lends itself to that. But, but that's, that's sad because the other side of Hoogstraten is somebody who's very clever and very interesting and, and, you know, doing, doing something, um, uh, you know, fairly, if, fairly ambitious and also very unusual. I mean, how many other guys do we have who actually pulled that off? We don't. I mean, nobody wrote anything as ambitious as von Mander's Skilderbuch or Hoogstraten's Inlighting in that period. After that, you get other stuff. But, and I was saying, you know, in, in an earlier conversation with Walter, the, the uh, changes that occurred in that 75-year period between from Mandelskilderbuch and Hoogstraten are stunning. And they're not just changes in art, the condition on you know, production of art and ideas about art, but the whole sort of apparatus of reading and writing. I mean, all those translations that came out in the decades between von Mander and Hoogstraten, extraordinary. I mean, it just changed the whole landscape. And Hogstraten had Unius. Oh my God, what Unius put together. Everybody in Europe was just pulling out of Unius because he had compiled this wonderful thing where you just could find everything you were looking for. So when, you know, somebody is coming into a project of writing about painting from a lifetime of experience as a painter and as a writer and as a compiler who's joining other compilers it's just it's it's not even similar but everybody everybody who cared about painting read von Mander you just of course you read von Mander whereas nobody 
in our period, if we're talking about, you know, the, the long 17th century, hardly anybody read von Hochstrom, right? That's not the importance <laughs> of the text. I mean, he wasn't read particularly, but he made something of what was out there. And so, so they're, they're really quite, you know, quite different in that way. But I would say, you know, very important in their own, in their own different ways, right? I mean, we can't, we, we can't equate them. They're just totally different. One of the ways in which von Munder is read anachronistically is he says at the end of the foreword, it's very, very famous passage where he's comparing the ancients to the moderns. By the moderns, he means the modern Dutch and Flemish, and to some extent, uh, high German um, uh, painters. And, and he says, well, the, the ancients did this. They painted sea scenes and they painted landscapes and they painted perspectives, and uh, they, they painted flowers, and they painted figures in various situations. And, and it's almost as if he's codifying the genre categories uh, for uh, the 17th century, and that's how that, that passage has been read. But what he's really doing in that passage, he's, he's, he's listing what he calls the Verschetenheden, that is the varieties of pictorial subject, in which you, the painter, can become expert. And what he wants to argue is it is perfectly fine to become expert in one thing or another and to become known for that. But the best thing is to take all of this and to incorporate it into history. The trick is his notion of history is nothing like what, say, Rubens would construe. Right. A history painting, uh, because he thinks of landscape and history as very interconnected. And the most persuasive kind of history, in von Munder's view, is a picture that embeds an episode taken either from history as events that have actually transpired or from mythological fable and embedding them within a landscape fabric in which you then insert what he calls and what Hoekstraten would pick up on this, a dorzine or an inzine that establishes an itinerary that takes you through a series of corollary episodes, Van Mander calls those the Befuchsele, the Befuchsele, that eventually leads to the main episode, which he calls the Scopus. He borrows um, that term from Alberti, the Scopus. And he said, that is a truly persuasive historical, um, the term he uses, he doesn't use the term, he uses the term composition very, very, very rarely. He prefers the term ordonnancy, which, which uh, in French, in contemporary French was ordonnance, and I think ordinance is actually a very good way of thinking about what he's talking about, the kind of pictorial ordering he's talking about. And he's saying, this is a persuasive history, multiple befuxelen embedded in a landscape that establishes an optical itinerary, the inzine or the dorzine that ultimately takes you to the scopus. And it is precisely because the scopus is so embedded in what he calls a small world, a self-sufficient pictorial fiction, an integrated pictorial fiction, the integration coming from the landscape, that the history will be persuasive to you, the mm -hmm. beholder. And moreover, 
you will be drawn into the picture, following the enzyme, following the dorsine, moving from beifuxel to beifuxel until you get to the scopus. You will be totally persuaded because you will be totally immersed in the, this experience of viewing history. That's what von Mondo thinks uh, a persuasive historical picture is, a picture that incorporates virtually all of the Verschiedenheiten that he lists at the end of his forward. There's a very different notion of, of, of history painting at work right. in von Mondo. If you look at von Mondo's paintings, I mean, his history paintings, you can see this is exactly what he's trying to do yeah. in them, that that's his paradigm of ordinance, of, of ordinancy. And, and so, I mean, I often wonder to myself what a super intelligent painter, uh, writer, like von Hoogstraten thought about what von Mondo construes as history painting. Well, you know, I recognize that I would have thought that that was rather odd 75 years later. I, I think he I think he comes down both sides of that. On the one hand, you know, his example of good ordinancy is the night watch. Mm -hmm. Right? Because that's got that's got flow, that's got interconnectedness of the figures, the massing is great. And you know, it's got it's got a certain kind of vitality and a narrative um, focus that's clearly not, you know, common in militia um, portraits. That his example is a portrait that acts like a narrative is interesting, and it's one that he knows. But you know, truth be told, he doesn't give very many specific examples of works to emulate for, you know, being great histories or, or whatever. If you look at his own work, it's kind of bifurcated. He does some, you know, little narratives that um, are not specifically, you know, uh, deposited in landscapes with lots of incidents, He's more focused on that score, I would say. But where you see that kind of aggregative uh, development is in the perspectives where you've got lots of, lots of different foci and you have an architectural framework that, that opens up you know, all these multiple vistas and, and so forth. When he writes about it though, I think he, um, he's definitely taking from von Munder that notion of being able to encompass the breadth of everything that painting can uh, depict in your work. And if you can't, it's certainly better to be an expert in one aspect of it than not at all. But ideally, He's saying, look, if you can do these things, you can do these other things too. Don't, don't be afraid, right? You can do, if, if, you, if you can um, paint the least elements in nature, you can get to the most complex, which is obviously the human figure and its motions and emotions and so on. But the history painting you know, to be a history painter is in some sense to be able to do it all 
not just figures, right? To be able to incorporate in your, in your painting, everything that painting can, can represent to be universal. That universality is the command of all those um, distinctive uh, those, those specifics. But then he has to create, and this is something that I don't think Fernando does, he has to create a system of evaluation in which um, there is an order of complexity that corresponds to the complexity of things in nature as he's reading nature, very human exceptionalist. Um, and so the greatest artistry goes with the greatest complexity, but so we have these degrees of art and that's interesting because it's the degree of complexity that he's measuring in those three um, ranks or degrees. Actually, there are ranks within the degrees. So let's call them degrees <laughs> with him. The degrees are interesting because they're not genres. They're not. And that's why still life, yep, that's in the first degree. But you know what? If you paint a figure that has no life in it, it can't go beyond the first degree either. So it's really a very interesting system for both um, assigning value to certain kinds of artistic skill that is to be, you know, understood both by the leafheber and by the artist, right? This is one of the criteria you use to judge, but it's interesting that it has to be based in nature. That's, that's important. And that it does not, I, I'm really, very convinced that it does not correspond to a hierarchy of genres. It's not about genres. It's about the order of nature and how that determines the order of value in art. So that's a really interesting, and I think it's fairly original. It spins off of things. You can find, you know, similar kinds of statements in French academic theory and so forth, but it's, they're not exactly, exactly like that. I think he's, he's tr trying to say, look, we can, we can codify this to some to some extent. You can judge the ambition and the importance of your own work and the work of others if you um, follow this kind of kind of formula. So you can have single figure histories. You can have elaborated histories. He's he's open on that front. There, he he can see the difference between. The, the kind of multi-dimensional, multi-episodic, um, uh, the use of bifuxels and so forth. Mm -hmm. But you can also create a history as Rembrandt might out, out of a figure yeah. with some additional bifuxel. Yeah, yeah. I've read von Hoogstraten through von Munder and I think Celeste has read von Munder through von Hoogstraten. And I've learned an enormous amount about, about von Munder from Celeste's reading of, of the Schilder book, as I've read, learned an enormous amount about von Hoogstraten from Celeste's reading of the inlading. So, I mean, our, our study of von Munder and von Hoogstraten has always been profoundly dialogic. Thank you, Walter and Celeste, for an interesting conversation. You can find this podcast series at 
hnanews.org slash podcast with references to literature and artworks mentioned in this episode. You can also subscribe to the Historians of Netherlandish Arts podcast on your favorite podcast app. Our next episode will feature Mariah Osnabrucha and Abigail Newman. If you're interested in joining an HNA podcast conversation, you can reach us at administrator at hnanews.org.